Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, go ahead and grab them. Turn with me to uh, John 11. We're going to be looking at John 11, verses 45 through chapter 12, 11 this morning. So we got a lot of ground to cover. If you're new with us, you're in need of a Bible. There's some in the back there. Feel free to grab one of those. If you're uh, using a device this morning, we'll be using the ESV translation. So if you want to change that in your device, you'll be able to follow along a little more easily. For those of you that don't know, this Sunday is uh, the first Sunday of Pastor Ronnie's sabbatical. So I just want to continue to pray for him and Melissa as they're away for this time of rest and rejuvenation. And with that, I just kind of wanted to clue you in on what we're going to be doing for the next few months, what it's going to look like. So we have three more texts in the book of John. So we'll do this morning and then Pastor Jeff, Pastor Mark, they're each going to take one the next two weeks. And then starting June 11th, we're going to pause on John and we're going to go through 2 Timothy, a series called Gospel Endurance. So you can be beginning to pray for that. You can be begin reading through 2 Timothy, preparing your hearts for that. And then um, after that eight-week series, we'll be going back into John. Around that time, Ronnie is going to be uh, getting back. And then John's going to carry us all the way through Advent um, to where the uh, beautiful Ohio snow starts coming down. You know, the, what me and my boy Andy Williams like to call the most wonderful time of the year. So we will be there. So that will lead us all the way up into Advent. So that will be what the next six months looks like. Last week we looked at this really well-known passage in the beginning of John 11, the story of Lazarus, and specifically the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. I would imagine for many of you that you are somewhat familiar with this story, but in case you aren't, maybe you weren't here last week, just a really quick recap is kind of necessary to give you some context into what our passage is talking about today. So Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, had become ill. And his sisters sent word to Jesus that their brother was unwell. And believing and knowing the power of Christ, they were basically requesting that Jesus do his thing and he heal their brother, which is a worthy request. But instead, Jesus sends back word to them saying that Lazarus' illness would not lead to death, but would be used for the glory of God and so that the Son, meaning Jesus, would be glorified through it. Now, if you know the rest of the story, you know that uh, Lazarus does indeed die or falls asleep, as Jesus says. But Jesus comes four days after Lazarus' passing and he raises him from the dead. And in this moment, he shows not just his power to heal or to create, but his resurrection power, right? The power to bring that which is dead back to life, which is important to his followers because they will need to remember that in the coming days. Now, in today's passage, we're going to look at another pretty well-known portion of scripture, which is a celebration dinner for Jesus, thanking him for using his power in raising Lazarus from the dead and restoring his life to him. I think it goes without saying that they were overwhelmingly thankful for what Jesus had done for them. I'm sure Lazarus more than anyone. I mean, you can imagine what a huge deal this is for them. Their brother was in a tomb. He was dead for four days. They were grieving. They were mourning. They had imagined all the things in their life that their brother was not going to get to experience with them. And now... All that has been reversed. 
It's been restored. This is a huge deal. And what we're going to see in the text this morning is that it wasn't just a huge deal for Lazarus and his family. It's a huge deal for the Jewish leaders of the time with massive implications for their well-being and for the nation of Israel as a whole and the power that the religious elect held over them. Jesus is no longer just a potential threat of them losing that power. He is an imminent one. And they need to decide how they are going to deal with this threat. So let's pick up in our text. John 11, chapter 45 through chapter 12, verse 1. Follow along with me. It says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Verse 51. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went on from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples Verse 55, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus said, verse seven, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and they were believing in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Well, growing up... Um, I got to spend a lot of time with my grandmother and she's one of these people, she's, man, always doing something. She's very busy all the time, always traveling different places. And one of the things that her and my mom used to do a lot of was garage sailing, all right? Garage sailing as a kid, bane of my existence. 
all right? It was hours in the car, always hot, never any food, all right? This, is, this was the 90s, all right? Parents didn't give snacks to their kids there, apparently. Like, you waited till you got home or you ate your own arm, whatever you could find. But I never wanted to go garage sailing with them. But my grandma, she would always sweeten the deal to get me to go by playing this one betting game that she would always play with my sister and I. And it basically went like this. Any bus that while we were out traveling, we saw whether it was a school bus, charter bus, whatever it may be, grandma would give us a dollar for every bus that we saw moving and we pointed out and we said, hey, grandma, we see that bus. But for any bus that she saw that was parked somewhere, we had to give her a dollar or we went into negative winnings because we had no money to pay grandma. Now, we would always start garage sailing early in the morning, so I would start stacking up some cash pretty quick, all right, against old grams. And then uh, by the end of the day, somehow, inevitably, we would always end up by some school. <laughs> yeah, with, you guessed it, all these parked buses <laughs> everywhere. And we'd always be like, Grandma, no, like, all my money, it's all gone. Now, I must not have been a very smart kid because it took me a really long time to figure out that that didn't just happen by chance, all right? Grandma, she had it planned out all day. She knew where we were going to end up. She made sure of it. It's so easy for us to fall into that type of mindset, type of mindset I have about old Grams with God, specifically when it comes to his plans of redemption and saving his people, which has a great effect then on how we think that he outworks his plans in our life now. We can tend to think that he's just waiting to see what we and others are going to do and then he somehow responds accordingly. That his planning only goes so far and in doing this, we actually turn him into a God of chance. But what I want you to see through our text this morning is that is not the God we have. God's plan of redemption in Christ was not just left up to chance, but God sovereignly ordains every piece of it so that Christ will secure for eternity all those he has called to himself. So we're going to break this text out into two sections this morning. If you're taking notes, we're going to be looking at two meanings and two responses. We're going to look at Caiaphas's words in verse 47 through 50. There are two meanings, what he meant by them and what God ordained through them. And then we're going to look at two responses to Christ in chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, both of Mary and of Judas. So look back with me, chapter 11, verse 47, as we look at these two meanings together. It says, So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and they will take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, verse 49, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Caiaphas Man, he's kind of known for his arrogance and his abruptness. A lot of other early writings that speak about Caiaphas speak of him this way. 
And it probably had something to do with the fact that he was high priest for a very long time, all right, about 18 years in total. And at this point in the text, he's believed to be in about year 16. So he has some clout with the people. And what he's basically saying here to all the other leaders is that if you think there's a problem here, quite bluntly, it's because you're stupid. You don't know anything at all. Just kill him. Get rid of him. It's that or the Romans, they're going to hear about what we're doing over here and they're going to think that we're trying to take over their reign and they're going to come in and they're going to take everything. All right, so kill him. Get rid of him. Now, ironically, the Romans are going to come in and they're going to take everything in about 80, oh, sorry, about 40 years from this time anyway. But you see Caiaphas's logic here. It's substitution. Him for us. It's better that one person dies instead of all of us, right? Now, you might be thinking, this seems kind of drastic. I mean, what are they so worried about Jesus for? You understand why the Jews are worried. He's claiming to be God. That's blasphemy to the Jews. But the Romans wouldn't care about that. They don't, they don't serve God. I mean, to them, Jesus is this guy. He's, he's healing people. He's bringing back people from the dead. He's, he's making wine. Like, these are all good things. Why would Rome care about that? What's the issue? We see the real problem in John 6. You don't need to turn there. We went through this story a couple months ago. It's the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And it tells us in verse 15 of John 6 that Jesus fled after he had performed this miracle, not because anyone was trying to kill him, but because the people were trying to take him by force to make him their king. And that's not what Jesus came for, at least not in the political sense that they were after. You gotta remember that the Jewish people, they were looking for a leader to help them overthrow the power of Rome that they were holding over them. And that's what Caiaphas is worried about. He's worried first about his own loss of authority and even worse, what it will mean when their greater authority, Rome, finds out. Because if you know anything about Rome in this time, they don't share power. So if enough Jews believe in Jesus, they can establish him as their king. And then the good thing that the Pharisees and the chief priests and the religious elect have established with Rome, it's over. It's done. So Caiaphas says, it's simple. Kill him. And so they will. But it will not accomplish what he wanted it to. Why? Because these aren't just Caiaphas's words. They are God's words and they have another more ultimate meaning. We see this in verse 51. Look back at the text with me, if you will. John says, Caiaphas did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. All right, that word prophesied there, that's the same word used for Old Testament prophets who pointed towards the coming of the Messiah. And prophets didn't just speak their own words, but they received and they delivered the very words of God to the people. All right, so Caiaphas had meaning for these words and he meant them for evil. But God himself held the authority of these words and he meant them for good, which changes their meaning completely. And it shows us that Jesus' soon and coming death was not just an unfortunate list of events that God kind of came into at the end and he just flipped around for good. 
It's not that. But in love was what he set in motion from the very beginning. I need you to see this. He didn't just see it coming. He planned it. This would establish the new covenant of God with his chosen people. The savior in place of the sinner. Christ's death would indeed pay for the nation. And verse 52 tells us, not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Meaning, salvation would no longer just be for the Jews, right? God's chosen people of Israel. But Christ would open the way for all people who would look to his death, his resurrection, and his ascension and believe on him as the very son of God to be saved from wrath. And not from Rome's wrath, like Caiaphas wanted, but from God's wrath, like he demands. Wrath, wrath against all of our sin, all of my sin, all of your sin. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, Romans 1.18. This was God's providential plan coming to pass, right? His wrath will be substituted and satisfied in Christ's death. And so verse 53 says, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Yet there's still more that needs to take place before the actual time of Jesus' death. And so it tells us Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, and this brings us to verse 54 and 55. Now there's no indication of exactly how many days are in between verse 54 and 55, but it likely wasn't too many. And it tells us the Passover of the Jews is at hand. If you don't know what Passover is, it's a celebration feast for the Jews, remembering what God had done to deliver them from the slavery of Egypt in Exodus 12. God was sending plagues upon Egypt so that the Pharaoh would release his people. And one of the plagues was that God was going to come through and he was going to take from each household and kill the firstborn. But Israel would be spared if they would take the blood of a lamb and they would place it over the doorposts in their homes. This would be a sign to God and he would pass over their homes. And so the Passover of the Jews is at hand in our text News has traveled amongst the people about the search for Jesus. Everyone is flooding the city to make preparations for this feast. The city of Jerusalem had a population pretty similar to Ashland's of about 20,000 people. But during Passover, this number would swell to over 170,000 people. So security is heightened. People everywhere asking if Jesus is going to show up. Those who love him are hoping he just stays in and stays hidden. But the time for preparation of Jesus as the final Passover lamb has begun. And so we see chapter 12, verse 1, says, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was to have dinner with his beloved friends. I just want to give you some perspective here. So if the warehouse that we are in right now, we're the temple where all these people are gathered who are trying to capture Christ. 
It would be like Freer Field where Jesus is at and the home in Bethany. This is how close he's brought himself to death. He will be put in a tomb. He'll be beaten, tortured, hung on a cross. What is testified must take place has begun to. Jesus, therefore. Therefore is a word of God's sovereignty, not of chance. And we see it twice in this portion of the text. The one that we just read, and then we see it again in verse 3. Look back with me at the text, verse 3, chapter 12, as we look at two sovereignly ordained responses to Christ. It says, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and she anointed the feet of Jesus, and she wiped his hair with her feet. This is a beautiful act of worship from Mary. All four Gospels actually have accounts of Jesus being anointed during this week of Passover. And some scholars, they believe that all these record the same account, while there are other scholars that actually believe these record two different recounts uh, of Jesus being anointed. I want to make the case this morning that at least two of these record different accounts. And I want to explain that why, though, I think they have similarities, that the details that differentiate them matter to the meaning of Mary, therefore. All right, turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, back to Mark 14. Mark 14, verses 1 through 9. So picking up Mark 14, verse 1. says, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask full of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and she poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you and whatever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. You can see the similarities in the text in John and in Mark. But I want to look at some of the differences because they matter. So in the story of John, we're told it's six days before Passover. In Mark, we're told it's two days before Passover. In Mark, we're told they are at the house of Simon the leper and there is no mention of a dinner taking place. In John, we aren't told whose house they're in exactly, but being that Martha, Mary, and Lazarus are all there and that Martha is serving dinner, it's most probable that this is their own home. In John, Mary is mentioned by name as the one anointing Jesus and it says that she anointed his feet and she wiped him with her hair. There is no mention of Mary in Mark and the woman that anoints Jesus here anoints his head, but there's no mention of his feet. Now there is a similar response 
in Mark and in John to the anointing of Jesus and that there was a bit of an uproar about the waste of the oil due to its cost. But again, in John, it's just Judas who is angry. In Mark, it's multiple people. So what's going on here? Are, we, are they maybe just a little fuzzy on the details? Is this maybe the same account and they're just not quite sure what exactly happened? Or maybe this is a different account. Either way, what difference does it make? Why does this even matter? I think it matters because it brings a very specific meaning to the word therefore, which again is a word of sovereignty, not of chance. Therefore almost seems out of place in our text in John. Why does Mary therefore even need to be in there? Doesn't say Martha therefore served or Lazarus therefore was reclining with Jesus at table. So why is it in there? I think that maybe it's a word of sovereign symbolism for what God is doing through Mary to Jesus. Remember the anointing of Jesus in our passage today is six days before Passover and his feet are anointed. And in Mark, it says it's two days before Passover and his head is anointed. There was a process for the Jews when it came to the preparation of their Passover lamb. And it looked like this. Six days before the Passover, you would bring your lamb into your home. You would monitor it for the coming days and make sure that it was healthy, that it was well taken care of. Now, because the area around Jerusalem had lots of sharp, rocky terrain, when you would bring that animal in, a lot of times their hooves and their legs, they were torn up. So six days before Passover, they would take this oil, the spikenard oil, and they would rub it into the legs and the hooves of the lamb to help bring healing to those spots. And then two days before Passover, they would take that same oil and they would pour it on the lamb's head to anoint it, to mark it as a symbol that the lamb was ready to be slaughtered. There's nothing chance about this interaction between Mary and Jesus. Mary, therefore, I think this is more than just a beautiful act of worship that is taking place from Mary. I think it is that. I think Mary is, this, is doing this out of her love for Christ. But beyond that, I think this is a sovereignly ordained act of God full of symbolism of Christ being the final sacrificial lamb to be slaughtered for the people. Jesus fulfills every single piece of the law, every single piece of of symbolism. No detail is left up to chance. God ordains all of it. And not just the good of Mary's response to Christ, but the bad of Judas's. Look back at verse 4 of John 12. We see Judas voice his frustration for this act that Mary has done. The text tells us, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this again, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas's response to Christ is so different from Mary's, isn't it? Man, Mary pours out something of such incredible value onto Christ. And Judas not only wants the money that could have been sold for that, 
but he's gonna sell Christ himself in the coming days. These couldn't be more polar opposite responses. And hopefully, you're asking why. Why do they respond so differently to Christ? I want you to think about that this morning. They've both seen Jesus perform a lot of the same miracles. They've spent time with him. They've heard him testify to being the son of God. They've even been in community with other people who love Christ. Does Judas just need a little more convincing, maybe? Or is there something a little deeper going on here? I want you to see that God doesn't just work his plans in the good things of life, but he works through and he has planned purpose for the bad. Even the atrocious sins of man and arguably the most egregious sin ever committed by man, putting the Son of God to death. Pastor and author John Piper says this, says the most horrible sins in the world are used by God for his saving purposes. Just when people think they're getting the upper hand, they find that their hand is serving the very one they are opposing. Now I love Piper. And I really love his words here, but he's just a man. And so we need to be able to back up those words with God's words for them to actually be true. So I want to look at a few passages that explain what's going on with the events that are unfolding in today's text. You don't have to try to follow along with me in these. I'm going to skip through them pretty quickly. But if you want to write them down, you can do that. First one I'm going to look at is Acts 4. The Apostle Luke in Acts 4, he records a prayer to God from Peter and John where they pray these spirit-inspired words. It says, They lifted their voices together to God and they said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Listen, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place place. John 17, Jesus prays these words to God about his disciples just before his arrest. He says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, speaking of Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And in John 6, 70, Jesus says, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. And in John 13, 18, Jesus says this to his disciples when speaking about who will betray him. He says, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. If you're thinking, all right, that, that still doesn't show us the difference between Mary and Judas, 
Listen to these words from Jesus in John 6, 64. It says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said this, this is why I told you no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father, and there it is. The difference between Mary and Judas was not just that Mary had more ability to logically reconcile that Jesus was the Son of God. It was that God had granted it to her. In his infinite grace and wisdom, he had gripped the heart of Mary and he had opened her eyes to see Jesus for who he was. But God had given Judas over to the desires of his own sinful heart, allowing Satan to grip the heart of Judas. And yet, I need you to hear me in this. Neither Judas nor Mary nor anyone else in this passage this morning ever sets a single foot outside of God's sovereign plan. God's plan of redemption in Christ was not just left up to chance. He sovereignly ordains every piece of it so that Christ will secure for eternity all those whom he has called to himself. Why does that matter? If you're sitting there and you're thinking, Scott, why are you so bent on us seeing God this way? Do you just, do you just want us to have good doctrine, right doctrine? Yeah, I do. But not just for good doctrine's sake, but so that you can have hopeful assurance in all the stuff in your life and that none of it is meaningless or by chance. God is using it in his plan of salvation to be completed in you. You can be sure of it. Because if what we see in today's text is the type of sovereign authority that God enacts to usher in his plan of salvation towards a people who are dead in their sin and hate him, which was all of us at one point, how much more so now is he invested in sovereignly ordaining the completion of that salvation for all those who love him and are called according to his purpose? How much more? Turn with me to Romans 5. And this is where we're going to end our time this morning. Romans 5. Picking up in verse 6 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. 
So many of you are walking through really difficult things in your life right now. Going through suffering that feels unbearable. Battling sins that feel like they're going to take you down at any moment. I want to remind you this morning through this text that for all those who are in Christ, for all those whose eyes have been opened to seeing the beauty of Christ and their complete need for him to satisfy the full wrath of God against our sin, those sins and those sufferings, they will not overcome you. Because Christ and God's sovereign authority has overcome them. In this world, you will have trouble. Take heart. I have overcome the world. These are Jesus' words in John 16. I want you to know that God has not left you or any part of your life up to chance. This includes the suffering that you're facing right now. And in this, you can rejoice. I was reading an article the other day from uh, Tim Keller on suffering. Tim actually... I uh, just went to be home with the Lord on Friday after a three-year battle with pancreatic cancer. And he had this quote in this article that stood out to me. He said this, In God's sovereign love, he uses our suffering to strip away the false hope we have in the finite things of this world. And he replaces them with the eternal hope of Christ. The Apostle Paul tells us as followers of Christ that we Suffer with joy. I don't want to hear, I don't want you to hear me saying that in any way, shape, or form that this is an easy battle because it's not. And actually, outside of Christ, it's an impossible battle. But in Christ and by the grace that we stand in together, we rejoice in our suffering as we remember that our suffering is not meaningless. Nor is it outside of God's plan because our suffering now as those who have been bought and paid for and redeemed by the blood of Christ, it's producing an eternal weight of glory and hope in us. And if you're still there, look back at Romans 5 verse 1. Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith and do this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So we start there, right? We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God because by faith in Christ we have peace with God. We have been justified in Christ. We no longer stand under God's wrath. We stand in the fullness of his grace. But Paul tells us, we must take that even further in this life as we wait for that hope to be fully revealed. So he says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us us. If you think that we have a God who is simply waiting to respond to the things of your life, 
a God who isn't quite certain what's going to happen next, a God who has a, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it sort of posture. I want to challenge you this morning to reimagine the God that you've created in your mind because that is not the God we have according to his word. He is not a God of chance. Let's pray. Father, would you uh, grant us the ability to see the ways in which you are constantly working in our lives in the good and in the bad for our ultimate joy in you and your plans for us which will one day finalize in eternal glory with you. Father, when we can't see past our own sin and our own suffering now, would you allow us to look back to your steadfast love and your faithfulness found in the truths of your word, that we would remember together that you leave nothing up to chance. Would you grow us in trusting in that and in you as we look to Christ who walks with us in our suffering and in our battles against our sin, who draws near to us in compassion, gentleness, and humility. Thank you for our Savior and for the eternal hope that we have in him. It's by his name we pray. Amen.